You're listening to the One Small Bite Podcast with me, your host, David Roscoe. For over a decade, I have built a successful nutrition practice helping thousands of people thrive, nourish their life, and break the cycle of crazy diets. We will take one small bite at a time to transform your health and develop a positive relationship to food. So let's chop the diet mentality, fuel your body, and nourish your soul. Okay, are you ready? Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. This is your host, David Orozco, with the One Small Bite Podcast, Episode 80. And this is the podcast where we chop that diet mentality so we build an eating that's in line with your values, so we make peace with food, with your body, and build a self-compassionate approach to living a truly enjoyable and healthy life. So I am excited. This is episode 80. I've got Chef Chris Spear with the podcast Chef Without Restaurants which kind of gives you a hint to what kind of chef he is, right? So you're going to love it. He's going to bring you some great tips, great knowledge, and have a great conversation with him. So stay tuned. I also want to remind you, if you haven't already subscribed to the show, please do so so you can get these episodes downloaded to your device. And remember, hit me up with a review and some stars because that helps us bring this out to more people. All right, folks, you ready? Let's get started with my friend Chris. Here we go. I have Chris Spear here, who is with Perfect Little Bites and Chef Without Restaurants. Hey, Chris, can you introduce yourself a little bit? Hey, how are you? Thanks for having me on the show. I'm glad to be here. Yes. Glad to have um, you on. Yeah. So I'm a lifelong uh, person in the food world, I guess. So, you know, people ask what you do. And so we identify as our careers these days, right? So, yeah. um, Yeah. I'm a chef. I'm a personal chef. I have a business called Perfect Little Bites. And uh, as well, I also have an organization called Chefs Without Restaurants, which I started about four years ago to help other personal chefs, caterers, anyone who really isn't working in a restaurant, help them maybe build and grow their businesses. Uh, I live yeah. in uh, the, uh, the D.C. area, and uh, I really love it here. And we have such a great community of people in this area. Oh, so you're in the D.C. area. I thought you were in Boston. So I grew up outside of Boston. Uh, so I lived there till I was like 22. And at this point, I've lived in seven different states. Uh, wow, seven. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, uh, and I'm not a military kid. Oh, just, I was about uh, to ask. <laughs> no, just traveling. My wife and I got out of culinary school. She went there as well. And we moved to Seattle. Then we moved outside of Philadelphia. Uh, now back here. Yeah, I heard, I've heard uh, your wife is a chef as well, and she has helped you quite a bit in your career. Talk a little bit about what you mean by being a personal chef versus sort of what we might more consider a chef. What What are the differences there? Yeah, so what I do, and, and the way I do my personal chef business is very different than a lot of other people. I want to give you an in-home restaurant experience. So I go into people's homes, and I cook for them there. I bring everything. I bring all the china, silverware. I set the table. I bring all the pots and pans and I prepare a customized meal for them. So I want to send my clients a questionnaire and find out what they like and don't like. And, you know, I ask them how adventurous they are, how much spice tolerance, if they uh, are okay with alcohol in the food. But then the bigger things now I'm seeing is any diet restrictions, any Mm -hmm. special diets. And that's why a lot of people hire me because 
it's so much easier to go out if you are a vegan celiac. I mean, it's so hard to go out if you have diet restrictions such as celiac or, or you're vegan. And now people can have really cool dinner parties at their home and I can tailor my menus to them. Do you see a lot of people, uh, a lot of chefs in the restaurant industry moving towards this type of work where they're more personal or different types of chefs than the traditional restaurant chef? Well, definitely now. I mean, pre oh, well, pre yeah. <laughs> pre COVID, I was seeing it, but now it's really growing, right? Um, I always talk about kind of aging out. You know, I'm 44, and a lot of people my age, you know, cooking's a young man's game. It's physically hard. You know, it's hard to get time with your family, all that stuff. So when you're in your 20s, sure, working 80 hours a week and working every weekend and staying up till two in the morning, maybe that's fine. But as you get married and have kids and just your body doesn't react the same way, um, you know, you start looking for other things you can do. And this was a way for me to kind of still feel like I was creative and, and being a chef and doing things I love, but just in a very different setting. So I get to make my own schedule. I work when it works for me and I turn down jobs when it doesn't. Uh, but I'm, I'm also not working super late. You know, I only have to be out of the house, you know, maybe I'll leave my house at say 4.30 and I get home at 10.30. So I'm out of the house six hours as opposed to like 18 hours or something crazy yeah. like that. Yeah. But I mean, you're, you're still working before all of that too, because you've got to do a heck of a lot of prep stuff too. Oh yeah. It takes like four days to do a one day job. So I've wow. said to a lot of uh, people, you know, I'll, I'll tell people what I do and friends will kind of razz me and they'll say, oh, it must be nice working two days a week. It's like, well, no, I have to menu plan with my customers, right? I have to go shopping for everything. I don't have a delivery truck that brings it to my house. I mean, now we have instant cart, uh, which is great, but uh, you know, and then you got to go, you got to go there and do the job and then commute home. And then you probably have a couple hours of cleanup time. So it's a lot that goes into it. That's amazing. That's, I mean, you're bringing up so many really great points. You know, I'm going to go back to one of the ones that you talked about, with with is which is the restrictions in a, in a person's diet. I you know I don't believe in people having restrictions, but sometimes with like celiacs, you have to, you just have to, or with diabetes or with kidney disease or some other things that are very very important, right? Like peanut allergies or nut allergies, and so that's really huge. That's important. I love that you mentioned too, though, about the amount of work that you're doing here, because, you know, doing home restaurant chef that that's not cheap. But no. when you think about what you just said, that's why it's not cheap. I mean, you got to think about it. You're, you're working four days into putting this one thing together. And then there's still the cleanup plus what you have to bring back home as well, plus all of the back office stuff that you have to do invoicing and stuff like that, I would imagine, right? All of that people don't take see totally. Any of that, right? No, not not at all. And you know, I do dinners as small as two people, which a lot of my um, competitors or people in my industry don't do because it's almost as much work. Like cooking for six or eight uh, is just as easy as cooking for two, right? So I only make what I can. I only make monetarily from my one job. I don't have people working for me, right? So if I go and cook for you and your wife uh, and I charge $100 a head, it's $200. If I do a dinner party for six, it's $600. Well, how long can you survive on doing just a couple, two people dinners, you know? Yeah, right. So exactly. that's why, you know, I talk a lot about pricing and what it costs for a dinner. And I think people don't understand because when you go to a restaurant, you know, the economy of scale, they're cooking for 
hundreds of people and they can get it down to $30 a person. But if I'm doing a dinner for two and it takes me three days, what I'm earning $200 over the course of three days. That's crazy. Yeah. Right. It just doesn't add up. It's not even worth doing it then. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. 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 People didn't really, I, for my 49th birthday, my wife actually had a personal chef come over and it was great. He, he cooked an entire uh, red snapper or four or five of them on top of the grill. And it was whole fish, uh, 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 red snappers. And then once they were cooked and stuff, he showed me how to open it up and how to debone it and how to cut the head off. And oh man, that was so great. I loved it. It was a great experience, but it was definitely by far not cheap, <laughs> you know, it was, but it was a great experience and I love it. And I think it's something that everybody could really benefit from doing. And I think that it's so wonderful to hear because Talk a little bit about then what the traditional route is for a chef so they can kind of hear the differences there. So like you said, you know, they're probably starting in their 20s. Is there like a career? Is it something that you have to go to school for? Do you have to do that or is there different routes to it? No, there's a lot of different routes. I mean, there are a lot more routes now, right? So I graduated culinary school in 1998 and I would say the internet changed so much. You know, when I graduated the internet wasn't really a thing. Like we had it in college in 1995. But when I was applying for my internships, which I had to do to graduate, which was, you know, like 97, um, I had to research where a restaurant was, which was really hard. Like you had to find books and then you got their addresses and had to make a resume and like send it in the mail and do that to like 40 different places. Now it's just, you go on Instagram and DM a chef and say, Hey, I'd love to come work for you. Right. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) But, but also being able to uh, educate yourself more again, you know, we didn't, you couldn't go online and see what they were doing in places like Copenhagen or Tokyo or Paris. You would have Mm. to go to a library Mm. and find a culinary book. And there weren't that many cookbooks the way there are today. I mean, they were very filled with just writing, no pictures. Now every cookbook is like a coffee table book and food is so visual. So every restaurant in the world now has a book and you can buy their book and open it and read this long story about the chef and see all these photos and the recipes. So what I guess I'm saying is you can educate yourself a lot beyond cooking school and at least give yourself a jump start. Uh, What I would say is just go work. Right. You know, like before you throw a hundred to two hundred thousand dollars at a culinary school and not even know if you're going to enjoy working in a kitchen. I think, you know, you start working somewhere. And then if you feel like you really need to refine your skills, you know, there's a lot of great smaller schools, you know, community colleges that have cooking programs. I don't think you need to go for a degree anymore, even though I have a bachelor's in culinary arts. That's fascinating. I didn't know it was that quite that expensive. I mean, I know that some universities might offer a cooking major or a culinary major, but I didn't know that. I mean, like I'm thinking of, um, oh, what's that, uh, Cordon Bleu or... So um, I, went to jo- I went to Johnson & Wales. Johnson & Wales, yeah. Right? That's the other one, right. And when I graduated, it was more than $25,000 a year, oh, which wow. I've heard it's doubled now. So you're looking at close to 50000 a year, right? So even... Uh, when I graduated in 98, I came out with student loan debt. What I had to pay was $404 a month for 10 years. That's what was remaining after my parents and I had paid along the way. And then you get a job that pays you $1,150 an hour out of college. So you're looking at, you know, at, at the time, like a major car payment or like what a cheap apartment would cost that, mm. that you're paying just for your education. 
And, and talk talk about then what so what would be the uh, entry level for a person with a uh, degree in culinary arts? Do they jump into the restaurant and they start becoming chef? <laughs> no, not even close. Uh, but I think some people do, and I think that's where the problem is. But I had it myself a little bit. So what happens is you get out and you have this crippling student loan debt, and you need to make money. So you maybe take a job that's beyond what you're ready for. You know, the terms chef and even like sous chef and chef de cuisine, there's leadership that comes with that. And just just because you went to culinary school and you know how to technically cook, I don't think you're ready at 22 years old to be leading a team. Especially yeah, especially you go into a restaurant, and there's people who've been there five, 10 years, they probably have 10 to 30 years experience on you. And at 22, you're the, you know, well, I graduated culinary school and now I'm your boss. Like, I think that's the hard thing. But when you need to start making those payments, uh, you say, yeah, $50,000 to be a sous chef. That sounds amazing. And you do it when really you should have been working in the kitchen, really honing your skills in a real environment for much longer, I think. Mm, fascinating. So that means that they have to essentially do an apprenticeship, even though they have the degree. How many years would you say it takes to get to that executive chef level or having that you know, financial freedom, what would be the, the trajectory there and how long would you say that takes? I mean, it depends on how dedicated you are, but I would say a solid five to 10 years. You know, I mm. think I got my first executive chef position. It was maybe 10 years. I was probably about 30 uh, when I got my first, you know, I just okay. kind of worked my way up a little slower, took sous chef positions. Um, some places I worked for catering companies, I had positions like kitchen manager, um, and just really, yeah, I wasn't ready to run a kitchen fully. Yeah. And, and there are so many blocks and so many, uh, hurdles and applications and, and, uh, and then the world of cooking is there's a lot of misogyny. There's also a lot of narcissism. There's also a lot of addiction. There's also a lot of, of challenges that cooks, chefs, and people in the culinary world deal with on a regular basis. This is, I think, why I want to segue into what Chefs Without Restaurants is for. What what are you looking at there to, to do with that? What is that mainly there for? To build community, to help uh, support each other and uplift each other. I guess the, the short of it is uh, I love camaraderie of cooks and chefs. And I've lived in some big cities. And I don't, I don't know. It seems like in big cities, there's more of that. Maybe it's just that there's more chefs, but I moved to Frederick, Maryland, where we have a smaller community and I was super excited to network with everyone and no one wanted to network with me. It was like every man for himself. And it's the kind of place where like when a new restaurant opens up, it's super competitive and it's not like welcome to the community. It's mm. he's taking another piece of the pie. And it really came to a head when I was, uh, we had a wine festival here and I was on the committee and I was put in charge of food and we wanted to do this food and wine festival. And I was super excited because this was what we were going to do. And I was going to invite all the chefs and they were all going to put up a plate and pair it with wine. Zero chefs wanted to do it. <sighs> like we literally reached out to like 70 restaurants and everyone was like, no, like what's in it for me? Like what's the ROI? Like nobody, it was all very, like a numbers thing. And I get it. it. It takes time to go there and money and all that. But I was just really excited that a lot of chefs would want to get together and network with each other and have a good time. And just no one was interested. But 
to make this event go off, I know I needed food. So I reached out to food truck operators and uh, people who were doing cottage baking out of their house and some of the smaller restaurants. But what I found was like, they were all hungry for it. And just this little community of all independent operators. And I thought, these are my people. They're the ones who, you know, you've got a food truck and it's just you and one other employee and, and you're baking out of your home. You have like no one working for you. And they were all craving that sense of community. Um, and then on top of that, I've been doing my personal chef thing for 10 years now. And what I found is everyone kept reaching out to me saying, wow, you seem to be successful. How did you do it? And there's only so many times you can like take coffee with someone and tell them your story. And I thought, well, why don't we just start a community and it can live in a Facebook group and on social media. And then I don't have to answer all the questions. So we can just kind of crowdsource the info and, and best practices and gig share. And I thought it was going to be four or five people that I personally knew. And we got some media attention the first week that I decided to announce it. And we had 200 people uh, follow our Facebook page wow. like three days after I informally announced it. And I just kind of let it organically grow from there. And that's Chefs Without Restaurants Facebook, yeah. Group, right? Yeah. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. I also love what you do and the connection to this with your podcasts. Um, Perfect Little Bites, I think it's called, right? So the podcast is Chefs Without Restaurants. So my oh, business, sorry. my business, okay. no, that's my business is Perfect Little Bites. So that's its own thing where that's just me and I just okay. go out and do my dinners. Okay. Uh, the name Chefs Without Restaurants came from a dinner that I went to that a bunch of chefs did this collaborative event. And it was about 10 years ago. And I loved the name and nobody ever used it for anything. So I just took the name and uh, all the chefs, I've reached out to them and let them know that I did that. And they were all supportive. I love it. I think it's brilliant because, I mean, I listen to your podcast quite a bit now and you have great chefs on there and the stories, man, holy cow. Talk a little bit about that. What would you say are some of the great stories that you've had? Because you've had quite a few interviews with a lot of great chefs. Yeah, I think the thing is that everyone's story is different and mm -hmm. how they got to what they're doing. So one of the big secrets that I hadn't even really wanted to talk about myself for so long is I've never worked in a restaurant. Like I've been in food service since I was 16 and I haven't worked in restaurants. I've gravitated towards catering and uh, contract food, working in hospitals. I've worked for Ikea. So I started also looking at that. So beyond the personal chefs and, and food trucks, like who are some people doing R&D stuff. My friend David Petranzik came on the show. He works for PolyScience and he's a corporate chef that travels the world uh, training chefs how to use their equipment. Like how cool is that? Oh, and, that's fascinating. You know, he just hops on a plane and goes over to Germany and stays, you know, over there for a couple of weeks and teaches all these chefs in these restaurants how to use their immersion circulators and their you know, tabletop uh, stoves and their pizza ovens. And then he's off to someplace else. And that's such a cool job. That's something that you can be doing in the food world that doesn't pertain to working day to day in a restaurant. That's fascinating. I have a really good friend who is a chef, but he, what he does is he's not um, a, well, he was a sous chef at a very famous restaurant here in Atlanta. And he moved into designing and selling um, kitchen equipment. 
And he, I mean, he's making a, a mega buck now, but you know, he uses a lot of his experiences as a chef and how to set up the uh, kitchen and, you know, the design and what equipment to use. And he does great. I mean, he doesn't do the actual selling. He does a lot of the, uh, the design work and, and setup of the equipment and stuff like that, which I thought is fascinating. Yet another direction to go where you're still sort of in the industry. You got one foot in there, but you're, you're moving in a different direction. And then I had a chef on not so long ago. Her name is um, Asata Reed, and she's doing work with, she and I go back quite a ways and did work corporate wellness stuff. Uh, she did a lot of cooking demos and corporate wellness and work, but she's working now with Small Bites Adventure Club, which is a fruit and vegetable box that's sent to schools, which is great. I just, I want to talk about some of this because every time I hear a chef come onto your show, I'm like, wow, this chef's story is just phenomenal. The stuff they go through is just, I remember you had another chef. Um, she was a baker and, or is a baker and she moved out of the restaurant world and moved into baking. And wow, the story I heard about how they treated her. That's why I mentioned the whole misogyny and, you know, that stuff. Talk a little bit about that because that was, yeah. that was just great. I mean, it's really hard. And I think the past two years, maybe we're getting a little better about that, but there's a lot of discussion about kitchen culture. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't want every episode to be like that, but almost every chef has one of those stories. So you kind of have to pick and choose which ones you want to tell because everyone has a very similar story about how, you know, they were in this terrible environment. You know, it's already hard enough uh, physically and mentally just the work, but why are we in environments where people are screaming at you, throwing things at you, but sometimes downright emotional abuse where, you know, you're being told you're garbage and, you know, you're getting phone calls uh, all hours of the night. And, and just, so, you know, I've had a couple of chefs like that. Kate, uh, definitely talked about that. You know, she talked about having to basically like run out of the restaurant on her last day as yeah. she's being like chased, chased from the grounds and, uh, you know, getting phone calls as she's on the bus home. Like that's crazy. That's psychotic behavior. And yeah. that is going on in restaurants. It's just not acceptable. It's not acceptable anywhere else. I guess that's one of the things too. And we've even said that on the show, like if you're at a car dealership, you know, and you don't close the deal selling a car, does the boss come out on the sales floor and berate <laughs> you? You know, uh, I don't know. Why does it allowed to happen in kitchens? And it has for generations. Yeah. So I would imagine shows like Hell's Kitchen is just definitely the epitome of a lot of that, right? And it's sad because that kind of stuff perpetuates that. I think, you know, we talk a lot about Anthony Bourdain, you know, rest in peace. And I think in later years, he, I don't think he ever meant it to be detrimental. But when you write a book like Kitchen Confidential about how you're having sex in the walk-in and you're doing drugs and drinking, like it really made it sound cool. And I think a whole generation of younger cooks wanted that life. I, he was almost telling it as a cautionary tale, but I don't think it was taken that way. But that was his very first book that came out. And a lot of people are like, I want to be like that. I want to go and be able to get hammered while I'm working. And uh, it just created like the, the more of the bro chef mentality, I think. Yeah. And, you know, you see things like Hell's Kitchen, which is also said because if you watch Gordon Ramsay's British shows, he's a totally different person. He's very caring and very empathetic and wants to help you out. Even if you watch Kitchen Nightmares uh, a little bit, 
But watching that where he's, you know, calling everyone stupid and throwing things, I don't think that helps our industry at all. And again, you should see that as like a, a cautionary tale. But I think a lot of people think that that's cool and acceptable. And it's not really great leading by example, in my opinion. Yeah, that's so great. I mean, that's really, really important to talk about. What are some of the things that you really like to highlight in your show and your podcast? I like to highlight the really interesting things that people are doing. You know, we talk a lot about imposter syndrome. Mm. I think one of the things that- fraud in my industry too. (laughs) Well, one of the things we've gone through is like, people say those who can't cook, teach, or, you know, things like that, right? Or you're a personal chef because you can't cut it. You can't handle being on the line doing 500 covers a night, which is why you're only cooking for two people. And that's really hard. And that's the thing that I keep hearing over and over from people. But I think the more we tell these stories, more people are comfortable saying, yeah, I'm okay with that. You know, I haven't worked in a kitchen in 15 years and I just sell kitchen equipment or I'm a food blogger. Even though I used to be a chef, I really enjoy this, you know? So I think by the telling of the stories, it's also making people feel like there are more people like them and that we have a community and then it just kind of perpetuates. I'm going to switch gears, but talk a little bit about the chef story too in a different light. And that's from nutrition because I have a lot of not a lot, but I do see quite a few of chefs or quite a few clients that I have that are chefs uh, or over the years. And I have a pretty good idea of where this is going to go. But I want to ask you, because I, I would imagine you see quite a bit. What is the nutrition like for a chef? Uh, what have you typically seen? Maybe your own experiences as well as others. Yeah, it's not great. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think you really have to if you're going to eat healthy, you have to dedicate yourself to that, but it's really hard. First and foremost, the hours, you know, a lot of people, if you're working in a restaurant, even myself now, you know, you go in and work like a two to midnight. So like, when are you eating? Because when you're normally eating would be like six o'clock at night, but I'm sure you've seen pictures on the internet of, you know, like chefs sitting on milk crates out by the dumpster, like shoveling food in their face. That's kind of the thing. They're not sitting down and having a real meal. Now, some restaurants do, Uh, family meal, which is a dinner before dinner. It's not always the healthiest stuff. And I haven't worked in any place that really did family meal. It was like, um, everybody fend for for themselves, scavenge what you can. Um, But the bigger thing is you're eating throughout the day to try foods. And that is the hardest thing. So let's just talk desserts like a chocolate mousse, right? So one of my cooks is making a chocolate mousse and he brings me a spoon and says, try this. And I try it. I say, it needs, you know, a little more cocoa. He makes it again, try this. That's good. Add a pinch of cinnamon, try this. And I do. I'm now three tablespoons of heavy cream and sugar in. I don't feel satiated. I'm not going to not eat dinner because I had that, but what's three tablespoons of heavy cream and sugar? How many hundred calories? Multiply Uh, that out times 40 things throughout the day, right? And then multiple days of the week. Multiple days of the week. It is easy to put on, you know, a hundred pounds without even realizing it just incrementally because of the amount of trying. You are trying and trying and trying all day. You do a pre-service plate up for the wait staff. So if we've got specials tonight, so you're going to put up a soup and an entree and a dessert and everyone tries them. So that that's not dinner, but I tried the French onion soup and I took a bite of the fried chicken sandwich and I had maybe three bites of the cheesecake. I still eat dinner, but I put on 500 calories of just sampling food. 
Yeah. And I just want to uh, stipulate something just because I know Chris doesn't know my world really well, but there's nothing wrong with someone that is a hundred pounds heavier. It's just that what you're talking about is the lifestyle itself doesn't lend yourself to eating in a way that you would otherwise normally eat anyway. And so you end up not even realizing that there's just a lot of unconscious eating. And then there's, I have to eat this because I have to try this. I also want to get to something else that's very interesting. And that is alcohol. Alcohol is pretty prevalent. Is that the right word? Is pretty prominent in in chefs, both in the restaurant world, but is it the same with personal chefs and kind of sort of the line that you do? Yeah. I mean, I think people in food and beverage like to drink, uh, bottom line. <laughs> uh, in restaurants, not only are people drinking after work to kind of unwind and have a shift drink. I've been in a lot of kitchens where people are actually drinking at work. I mean, I worked at a place where my sous chef would sit in his office with, he drank vodka on the rocks and would during service drink that. And that kind of set the tone and chefs, you know, went out to the bar to get a pitcher of beer for their beer battered fish. And then whatever they didn't finish, they would pour a cup and have it on the line and drink their beer while they're cooking. Um, you know, for personal chefs, uh, I have customers who offer drinks to me while I'm cooking. And I have on occasion for sure, especially as you get to know them, they're repeat customers, they're having a party. Hey, we've got a bottle of wine. I mean, who doesn't want to try some, some of the wines I've had? I mean, it's like a $500 bottle of wine. I'm never going to purchase myself. Of course, I'm going to have a glass, but you know that it takes the edge off. It makes you a little sloppy. You start getting, you lose your focus. I, I don't really like it that much actually, because it takes that edge off when you need to be hyper-focused, especially because I work by myself. It's not like I have someone else to rely on. I'm keeping track of five different things cooking in my head at one time. I need to be sharp. That's fascinating. Wow, man, I, I am enamored by the work that you do, man. It's like, wow, putting up with so much stuff. It's, it's amazing. I mean, it really is amazing. That's one of the other reasons why I love, I really love your community, man. I think that seeing how there are resources and experiences that especially younger chefs or younger cooks that are going into this world really should be aware of, you know, and understand that it doesn't have to be that uh, Gordon Ramsay, no offense to the chef. I mean, I think he is a good chef, but yeah, that, you know, that, that one show, it's just, it kills it. it. Well, he does have another one where he's like going into um, broken down restaurants or, and he's turning them around in 24 hours. And I'm like, Oh, please. You know, the sensationalism of TV, but yeah, talking about the resources that you're offering, that's great. I mean, that's really, really good. I, I, and again, I also love the name of your personal business too. You know, Perfect Little Bites just falls perfect with my one small bite concept here. Yeah. Well, my wife and I love to eat, obviously, but trying different things. So when we go to restaurants, we always try to get different things, even if we want the same thing. So it started with like, uh, the perfect bite is like getting every component on a plate. So like we would trade. So, you know, I've got a steak and I dip it in some of the mashed potatoes and then the steak and then the chimichurri. And then like I hand her the fork. So she'll say like, here's a perfect little bite of whatever. And we just always jokingly said like, oh, if I ever had a business, that would be the name. And then, you know, like 15 years ago, I started it like a blog. I was like, well, I'll call it perfect little bites. Like before it was even a business or anything. So even you know, people now are like, well, what is that? Is it tiny little catering things? I'm like, no, it's full dinners, but the name is stuck. I built a brand around it and it's no, I love be, it. I, it'll be with me. 
Yeah, no, 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 man. I love it. I love the name. I think it sounds great. Um, so uh, I want to go back to, again, uh, the chef's health, right? Because yeah. there are other things, uh, the stresses that we talked about earlier, you know, financial stresses, you know, having to pay back loans and stuff. Then there is the the berating and the difficulties that they have to go deal with. And even starting your own business. I mean, even what you do, it's not like one day you're going to wake up and you're going to have, you know, a slew of calls for people to chomping at the bit to get you to cook for them at their house, right? No, that that's... Not no, work you're, you're, you're chasing leads every single day. Right, right, right. Um, so the other thing too that I think about is uh, the amount of physical activity. To me, um, a chef is extremely physically active. Uh, I, so I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I keep thinking then, do you have resources on how to tell chefs what, what kind of lifestyle maybe, including nutrition or physical activity uh, from the get-go into their routine? Is that something that you talk about with, or tell new chefs coming into the world? I think we talk a little bit about how challenging the lifestyle is. You know, I think if people are going into my area versus a restaurant, the lifestyle is definitely easier. I mean, it's still hard. It's still mentally, physically stressful. I mean, I still have very long days, um, but it's not like working as a line cook or a chef in a restaurant. So yeah, letting people know. I mean, my dad even had that talk with me when I was looking at getting into food service. He said, you know, it's going to be long hours on your feet and heavy lifting and hot and stressful and working all the holidays. You want to do this? Um, so just kind of making sure we share a lot of those stories, especially for people out there who haven't started their culinary journey. Uh, and we've had a lot of chefs come on and talk about their physical and mental health and substance abuse. So being able to to get that out there as well. So let's go a little bit further with the resources. What kind of resources do you have on your community or with your community? So we're working on that. I think tactical resources for building and growing a business. So whether that's help with marketing or just straight mentorship, uh, if you need some kind of document, you know, like I've created template emails for when a customer reaches out. I've created gift certificate templates. I've created, you know, spreadsheets on um, budgeting and, and things like that. So as Chefs Without Restaurants continues to grow into more of a consulting uh, aspect, as Chefs Without Restaurants is a business and it's a podcast. So the business end is actually like business consulting for food operators. But we do so much of that for free. You know, if someone reaches out to me and says, hey, when a customer asks about a dinner, what do you say? I send them my template email. It's not like, give me $2 and I send you a template email. I give it to them. And through our community and message boards, there's a lot of that. So whatever people need, just advice. My uh, evaporator on my food truck broke. Where should I get it fixed? And all the food truck operators jump in. So That's I don't weird. even have to, I don't even have to handle that. That's the nice thing because it's a community. Mm -hmm. I don't have to answer every single thing. Mm -hmm. I had a guy, but I had a guy call me yesterday who's having trouble at his job, a restaurant job. They're furloughing him in uh, a month and he doesn't know what he's going to do. He doesn't know if he's eligible for unemployment. He doesn't know if he should be a personal chef, where he's going to get money. And he just wanted to talk through some options with me. I don't even know him, but he's found the podcast in the community and just asked if he could call. And we talked for 20 minutes. I told him, you know, what I would tell his bosses. Here are the questions to ask. This is what you should think about. That's how I found you. I was not on uh, Chefs Without Restaurants, but I found you through someone else that I was working with. And I was lit and I immediately went to your podcast and I thought, 
oh, wow, <laughs> I've got to have Chris on, man. This is phenomenal. A lot of the stuff that you're doing. And I love that you're talking about how the community is actually building their own resources within each other and they're supporting each other more than anything else. This is so vital for a lot of chefs getting into the world because, yeah, I mean, I think that's also how you kind of uh, enhance uh, or improve the kitchen culture that you talked about a little while ago, right? Yeah. Well, I wanted to give back because as I was building my business almost a decade ago, there were a lot of really great chefs who helped me. You know, you could just get on Twitter and say, oh, wow, like who, like, what should I buy for equipment? Like I'm starting this personal chef thing. And all these people were really generous and would tell you what you could buy and send you Amazon links. So, or you'd say, oh, what, what should I be charging? Like, does this sound right? And people would tell me, so why do we all have to reinvent the wheel? You know, and a lot of people from the outside say, well, you're helping build your competitor's business. Eh, maybe, but you know, there's only one of me right now. You know, I'm booked on Saturday night, so it doesn't hurt me to have someone else out there doing private dinners on a Saturday night. Well, uh, I mean, and then there's the dollar per hour. There's only so much you can do with yourself anyway. I mean, it's like um, you you help someone else out and then in the future, they're going to refer a client to you that they're not going to be able to handle with too. So there's the give and take kind of concept to the community and the support, right? That's That's with any group. Definitely. Yeah. Gig sharing has been the biggest thing that I have found benefit out of because previously I was paying so much in advertising and now, you know, you're, you're leveraging the, um, reputation of all these other chefs. So, you know, there's a, a chef in, in Baltimore who sends me gigs like every week and he'll just send me a text and say, Hey, someone reached out for dinner, you know, on this date for this many people. Are you interested? Yep. And then he sends them my way. You know, these are people who probably wouldn't have even found me, uh, but they found him and he passes it. And then I try and do the same thing. So building this referral network where now I don't have to spend, you know, it's $50 a gig on Thumbtack to get a lead or drop, you know, $500 on Facebook ads. If I'm just getting referrals through other chefs in the network, that's amazing. And I'm hoping I'm providing that same value to other people in, in the network. So two things uh, that I'll go into uh, along with that, with this network is one, I could also see how your community also helps a lot of restaurants that may be looking for uh, chefs or uh, people to work in their, their establishments. I would imagine that that community does that as well. Share information that way. Somewhat, you know, it's really hard. So chefs without restaurants is kind of like for people who want to have their own thing. Uh, so occasionally people will reach out to me and say, do you know anyone who's looking for a job? So I will post that internally with our group, but I don't want it to be a recruitment space to pull people into restaurants because that's not what it is. It's not for like unemployed cooks looking for jobs. It's really people who are looking to either side gig or start their own business. But I do have people all the time saying, I'm looking for a line cook at my restaurant. Can you help me find someone? Mm. Maybe, but that's not most of my community. That's good. That's good. I'm glad that you clarified that for me. All right. So then uh, the other area that I was thinking about too, this is something that I see a lot. That's a very ch big challenge is um, if you're doing your own business, one of the most difficult things is healthcare and insurance. Have you guys talked a lot about mm. that or how's that? Yeah. Come if my, I, to be honest, I don't know what I would do if my wife wasn't able to carry the insurance. Uh, mm. I did get fed up at my last job and I left without insurance and we went on the, uh, thank God the affordable care act. But two months into that, my wife was able to get insurance at her job. And that's really the, 
Uh, it's so frustrating. There's so many people out there in the world, not just who want to get into food, but anyone who wants to work for themselves. I feel like they're being held down by the fact that healthcare is so expensive if you're going to go on your own. And even now that there's the you know Affordable Healthcare Act, affordable is a loose term, I think. Um, and, and that's just for basic coverage, but God forbid, what if something terrible happens? Um, healthcare in general isn't inexpensive. I mean, what we're paying every month for a family of four is in, an insane amount. Uh, yeah. And still looking at what you have for co-pays and deductibles and everything. So that is one of the challenges. And I think it's one of the things that hold people back from really going all in on this. Yeah. Healthcare to me, insurance is such a big, big determinant of people's health, such a barrier in many regards, unless you're working for somebody that has good coverage. And the problem is, is that a lot of times you'll have to go and sacrifice something in your life, your health, your uh, time, your energy, your family, in order to just keep some of those health benefits because you're shackled by that uh, occupation or that position. And yeah. And then, I mean, if you, you have a dream and you want to get into like what you're doing, right? It is extremely difficult to get some kind of coverage, some kind of health benefit that's going to be somewhat decent and yet affordable, which is, you know, they often don't go hand in hand. Um, wow. That, that's just a lot. I mean, I could talk forever about all of that too. So, um, all right. So I wanted to just quickly add something that I heard earlier on. I couldn't help but think uh, you worked at Ikea for a little while, right? I did. <laughs> okay. What's the secret behind the Swedish meatballs? They come in pre-made frozen and they are specially produced by some food distributors. So they're made exclusively somewhere. <laughs> they're uh, not I, made there? What? No, they're not. Um, they're not made there. And I will say if you Google ikea food trick you're gonna find me i wrote some stuff on the oh, internet of, i did i i was on the quora website and someone asked about food marketing and ikea does a great job with food marketing and i answered a question but i didn't know that the original question had been posed by someone who was a reporter on an australian tv show so then it became this expose of american chef at ikea tells you why the meatballs are so cheap and it went on their morning talk show which oh, then got wow. Which then got picked up as a article in the New York Post the next week, which then led to a TV show in London uh, called Tricks of the Restaurant Trade. They were actually looking to fly me out to London to be on the show, which ultimately didn't work out. I was so disappointed. I don't think people at Ikea were really pleased that I was kind <laughs> of exposing. It was just about loss leader stuff. Nothing yeah. rocket science. I was amazed that people really thought it was that interesting. Yeah, I heard about that article and I was fascinated when that's why I wanted to ask about that because that's so good. Because every my daughter, too, I mean, my wife and my daughter would go to IKEA every once in a while. Although nowadays we were not going as much, but the Swedish meatballs was always a great way to get my daughter to go to IKEA because, you know, kids like, oh my God, I go into IKEA. It's such a maze, you know. But uh, I just I thought I had to bring that up because I thought it was quite uh, an interesting story on your part there. So <laughs> pre made, ready to go. Yeah, that's fascinating. What would you say are some of the areas people are, because I know with COVID now, uh, restaurants are dealing with, you know, a, a disaster on their hands, a, a pandemic, which they've never foresee, of course. But uh, what do you see a lot of chefs then moving into in, in the personal chef world or, uh, uh, you know, not alternative jobs? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people have 
started their own businesses at this time, at least starting on the side. You know, one of the big things is a lot of people haven't been fired indefinitely, but they've been furloughed for the foreseeable future. You know, every day I'm seeing restaurants say we've made the decision to close at least for the rest of December and probably January. So what does that mean for your cooks? You know, your unemployment isn't really cutting it. I mean, I was getting unemployment for a while. It My benefit, which is what most people get is $350 a week. Like you can't live off that. I make more than that in one day. Uh, so a lot of people I think have been reaching out to me just seeing what can I do? You know, can I, how do I do what you do? What is the the startup cost? How do I start, you know, making money instantly? Uh, so a lot of people are wanting to get into this kind of in-home personal chef thing. Mm, that's great. I mean, so the home chef thing that you're doing is one thing. What are other directions that you see people going aside from home chef? A lot of people are doing the cooking demos. What can you do via Skype? Can you do cooking classes or can you spend the time to make a high quality like masterclass where you don't have to be there for every class? I think that's a great idea. Instead of, you know, grinding it out every day to get a dozen people on Zoom, could you just record the videos and then have it be a downloadable course that people can pay and have forever, you know? So like a cooking class for people to learn Mm -hmm. how to cook. Is that what you're talking about? Yep. A very visual. Are you familiar with the masterclass? Yeah. Um, Yeah. 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 So Mm -hmm. like that, I mean, there's a lot of chefs who do those. Could you do your own one of those? Um, What about uh, some of the non-traditional stuff that we were talking about a little while ago? I kind of talked about my friend, but there are two chefs that I was just mentioning. What about what are you, what else have you seen? Uh, One of the chefs who's on my show started a spice company. So he's doing direct to consumer spices. Uh, He's starting by doing a lot of just kind of procuring them and then packaging them together. So he's kind of the broker. So he's got a lot of friends in the food industry and just kind of finding the best items and then selling them via his website. So uh, it's chef Two David Fu, who was on the show top chef. And, you know, a lot of people reach out to him about where can you find a quality fish sauce? Where can you find a quality Szechuan peppercorn and, and things like that? Uh, but he was also selling pho kits via the mail where he sends you all the ingredients that then you can cook at home. So like your own blue apron type thing. Oh, that's phenomenal. I didn't know about that. Everybody loves pho. I mean, holy cow. That's great to be able to do something like that on your own. Uh, yeah, I heard that uh, interview with to David Fu. Yeah. Um, and uh, I saw him on uh, the show as well. I was like, oh, this guy's great. <laughs> but I think yeah. that's a, a great example of kind of thinking outside the box. You know, c- could you be making baskets? I mean, I could go out there and kind of put together a kit of all my favorite things and just sell it to you. Uh, and and mark it up. And I think some people are doing that and having success with it. Yeah, I had a good friend of mine, Ed Gale, who uh, comes uh, f- it, it, with the grilling on the grilling side. He's a grill master and he was on my show and he has Ed Gale barbecue and he's doing the same thing. He loves, he has a four-part process. He does actual uh, competitions. He does cooking show or not shows, but cooking demonstrations. So he has live classes and then he does, um, uh, uh, he sells his own spices and herbs and rubs and um, what's the other, and sauces, which was uh, really, really, uh, I mean, just great stuff. And he's also doing then the fourth part, which is online stuff as well. Well, I have uh, a friend in one of my podcast guests, Rich Rosendale. He does a lot of the 
creation of that stuff and the packing. So basically, if you're a chef who wants to make a barbecue sauce, you go to him with the recipe. He buys all the ingredients and he makes a bunch of them. And then you come in for the tasting and there's, you know, five bowls of this one type of barbecue sauce. And the the creator of the sauce goes and tries all of them and says, you know, number two, I think is the one that I want to go with. And then Rich handles the production of making the large batches of that stuff. Um, so you don't even have to have a large production kitchen. You just really have to have a recipe and an idea. And one of the things Rich does is he helps you execute that and then get it into, you know, there's different ways you can have that packaged. Yeah, that's great. What would be, uh, an entryway, what would be a simple thing that you would recommend a chef wanting to go into an alternative, non-traditional restaurant approach? What would you be, what would you say is one good piece of advice that you would give him or her? If, if it's something that has a low cost to entry, just start doing it. You know, people ask about the personal chef thing, just start cooking for your friends. That's what I did. You know, it's so challenging because I bring everything with me. That's, something that most people aren't used to. So before you start doing it on mass scale, ask your neighbor across the street or next door if you can cook for them and see what it's like to load all your china and pots and pans and just carry it across the street to your neighbor's house and cook on their stove and oven that you've never done before and see what it's like cooking and talking and kind of entertaining at the same time. Like don't start do it on doing it on expensive clients. You know, there's no cost there. You and you don't have to have anything to be a personal chef. There's best practices. Like I have an LLC, I have liability insurance, I have my serve safe food certificate, but I'm not legally bound to have any of that. I don't report or answer to anyone. So you know if it's your neighbors or your cousin, just say, can I do a dinner for you and go out and do a bunch of them. And oh, say, you know, do it for free or say, do it for cost and uh, just practice. And within a short period of time, you'll know if it's something you're going to like doing. I love it. The just do it mentality. It's got to be one of the best taglines out there. I mean, I, I think that also goes to the perfectionist problem where I got to do it just right. I've got to get that perfect lead. I got to do it this way first. And you jump in that way. It's like, oh, man, and you don't have any experience on the background. Oh, well, that's that's where you need someone to kind of keep you in check. And I think that's the hard thing about not having uh, any employees. So many of us don't have coworkers or employees. So you can be accountability partners to each other. But like for me, it's my wife, you know, and she'll come out on a gig with me and I'll forget to put something in a dish and she'll say, it's fine. She'll say, like, you realize you're the only one who knows this, right? Like you're the only one who notices this and it's not a big deal. Mm -hmm. And I need that sometimes for someone to say like, yes, to you, that's perfect, but it's really like a 1% thing and you need to be able to not worry about that. Um, you're bringing up a great point because a lot of times one of the things my wife and I love doing is making something out of nothing. Sometimes we're, we're down to the end of the week. We, we shop once a week. We're down to the end of the week. We have very few groceries, but we've got something in our pantry. And so we challenge ourselves, okay, what are you going to do? What are you going to make? So for example, last night, my wife made a fantastic dish of beans and rice. She took beans, canned beans, she put salsa in it, and then she heated up rice that we had left over in the refrigerator. She didn't even cook the rice because we didn't have any rice to cook. And she just heated it up in the microwave, laid it onto just sprinkled some, some cheese on top of it. And then we had, I think, uh, um, kale chips. She had, we had some kale left in the refrigerator and we put them on a dish, a little olive oil, we just popped it in an oven and it's boom, done. And it was a fantastic dish. I was like, oh, this is yummy. <laughs> this is really, really good. I, and I saw a lot of that 
especially when COVID first started and people weren't going to the store, you know, there's a lot of jokes. I mean, and actually a lot of places, stores were out of things, yeah. common items. Yeah. So I saw a lot of what people are calling like quarantine cooking, you know, which is just, <laughs> just, just wing it. You know, I got a lot of people reaching out to me saying, I don't have X. What is a good substitute for that? You know, it's mm. like, because so many people aren't intuitive cooks, they don't realize that you don't have to follow that recipe to a T. And mm. what I loved is I saw so many people at home getting more comfortable with freestyle. Yeah. And it's like you said a little while ago, it's like your wife is saying to you, well, they don't know what you're making. So wing it, you know, just, it doesn't matter. I mean, they're, they're not going to know maybe the difference between not that you can afford saffron in a, in some dishes, but the saffron made maybe instead, you know, use a little paprika or don't worry about the color. You'll get it from this. Right. Which is really, really important. And it also comes down to things like when I first started this, I remember the first customer I had who was celiac, uh, I made gluten-free crackers from home. That is an enormous waste of time and resources because I was priding myself that every single thing had to be homemade, right? Like that's mm. what I was building my business on, but that's not realistic. Like mm. I don't want to serve a lot of processed food and a lot of packaged things, but when you get to something like that, you need to just buy a bag of gluten-free crackers, especially if it's one person at a party of like eight, I can't be making gluten-free crackers for one person. Yeah, no, it's great. And it's things like that that I just learned along the way is to just be comfortable with saying, yeah, like, no, these are great. I bought them at Aldi and I love them. Well, you know, and you're also saying something that's really, really important. And this is something that I tell a lot of clients. I'm, I take a very anti-diet intuitive eating approach. And I love that you, you mentioned intuitive in the sense of cooking, right? To me, intuitive as well. I think, you know, every once in a while, there's nothing wrong with processed food. We have to have it because there's a convenience factor to them. And this is a society and lifestyle that we chose to have. But we need to have those things because time is sometimes more important. So it is okay to have some of those things in your diet. The key with all of this is what is it that your body's needing and how much are you actually doing and how often are you doing it? That that's really, really the key behind the nutrition aspect behind uh, as well. So I love that you're bringing that up. Uh, all right. So I've got to ask you, what has been one of your, your best meals that you've made for a family? or event. I love grits. Are you familiar? Well, you're okay. So yeah, right, I'm in the South. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm a northerner, but now down in, I don't know, people call the DC area, the South, but uh, my sister-in-law lives in Charleston and we get down there every now and then. So I've fallen in love with grits and I probably have seven kinds at my pantry at home, different grinds from different producers. But I had someone reach out to me and say that his wife was from Charleston and could I do a dinner focused around grits? So I did a seven course dinner that had grits in like everything. Wow. Yeah. And the the thing that came out of it that I really love now is I do a pineapple upside down grits cake. So I take pineapple and I smoke it and grill it. And then I toss it in the brown sugar caramel. And then you make this cake with grits in the batter. So it's like a polenta cake, but with grits. Uh, oh. And then you put the grilled pineapple on that. And then you serve it with some Luxardo maraschino cherries, which are the best. You know, they're like a $20 jar of cherries. Um, but that was one of the things that came out of that uh, that dinner. But just being able to highlight, you know, grits in all kinds of fashion. Uh, and And I really enjoyed doing that. All right, my friend, I have to put you on the spot here, man. You're going to have to give me that recipe so I can put it on yeah, the website. Totally. I'll get you the recipe for that. It's one of my favorites. All right. That's great, man. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm 
I'm seeing many of my listeners licking their lips like I just did. I was like, when you were talking about that, I was like, <gasps> there's this restaurant nearby, um, Kimball House. I'm going to give them a big plug because I love them. They're great. They make this um, caviar and Midlands. So these are the, you know, you know what Midlands the are, right? The, like the broken rice. Right, exactly. Yeah. And it's, but it's grits. So it's broken yeah, yeah. grits, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and so they have this the caviar in the center. They have the, the grit Midlands along the uh, perimeter. And then they also put a quail egg, a slightly cooked quail egg, the, just the yolk and pop. Oh man, talk about butter and salt and carbohydrate in your mouth all at one time. It's just like, <laughs> well, I, I feel like it's part of my job to teach people about grits, which sounds crazy again, because I'm a northerner, but I think so many people have only had the instant hominy Quaker mm -hmm. grits, mm -hmm. which are very, I mean, the first time I had them, I was, wow. living in, I was in Rhode Island and my wife, you know, she's from Virginia and we'd come home from a concert and have been drinking and she just wants something on her stomach and she would like open this pack and put water and microwave it. And I was like, uh, like what is <laughs> what is that that it's is like cream gross. of wheat it's like yeah, cream of so wheat. yeah that's what that's my first introduction at like the age of 21 so i wasn't interested and then when you have real grits the first time you have shrimp and grits uh you're like oh this is a totally different thing but it's funny because people will order polenta i'll say do you want grits and I'm like no i don't need grits i'm like what about polenta yes yeah I'm like <laughs> okay and bob's red mill sells it it's a bag that says polenta slash grits, grits. on it yeah, I saw I it. Like it leans more towards the polenta, in my opinion. But um, yeah, so, yeah, so yeah. That's my that's my gateway into the grits world. Yeah, Trader Joe's sell, sells this polenta log that so it makes it so easy to cook polenta. I'm like done. I'm not yeah. going to cook polenta because it's going to take a long time. Slice it and put it in the pan. That's it. That's it. That's it. All right, my friend, I'm going to ask you the same question that I ask all my guests. Okay. We kind of hinted at this, but this might be a little bit tough because it's like asking for, you know, what's your favorite child or to pick your favorite child. If this was the last meal that you were ever going to have, like maybe you were standing on a desert island or something or, and someone could cook it for you. It was, it was, there's no hands, no, there's, you don't have to do anything, but it's any meal that you can have. What would it be? I just want really good tacos. Oh man. I love Love taco. Isn't that amazing? Such a simple dish can taste so phenomenal. Yeah, definitely. Especially, and then, you know, I would even eat just like an Ortega crunchy shell with ground beef in it. But, you know, a really good taco is something I love. I talk about it all the time. My very last podcast guest has a whole business, a whole catering business based on an upscale taco bar. Literally, that's all he does. When oh. you hire him, he comes to your party and just does a taco bar for you. And oh. I am I am here for that. Just oh. I, want, I want tacos. I actually even gravitate towards like super fancy food anymore. Uh, yeah, I, I usually don't either. I just really love some of those simple things. I have to go back to some of my roots. In Colombia, we make this dish called bandeja paisa, which is a sort of country man's food. That's what it means, a country man's platter. And it's got rice, ground beef, plantains or tostones, pacatones, we call it in Colombia, and then pork rinds. So pork belly, pork rinds, right? Uh, and then we have uh, chorizo or morcilla, and we also have plantains that and, then delicious. An, and then an egg a fried egg on top man talk about just absolute yum <laughs> yeah i would eat i would eat some of that right simple meal i mean simple cooking right um yeah. well actually nothing simple about it so hey chris man this has been fantastic where can people find you bro they can find me at both perfect little bites and chefs without restaurants so if you google those actually if you go to uh, my name which is christopheraspear.com it's basically like a link tree that links to all of my, uh, both of my businesses and all the platforms all in one convenient space. 
And I'll have those links on my show notes as well. And of course, that, that let's see if I got it, that pi- upside down pineapple grit cake. Is that right? Yes. Well, okay. <laughs> I'll have that on there as well. Hey, Chris, man, thanks a lot. This has been fantastic. And I, I want to have you back on maybe sometime in the future. Does that sound cool to you? Yeah, that would be great. I love talking to you. Yeah, man. Okay. Sounds cool. All right. I'll see you soon. Thanks. All right. Thank you very much, Chris. I appreciate you bringing us some of that great wisdom and experience and just get us to really understand the plight of chefs. Really, really important. I love what you're doing, man. Keep it up, brother. I hope our listeners really enjoyed this. And uh, yeah, speaking of you, if you haven't already done so, remember, subscribe to the show so it gets downloaded to your device automatically. And I'd love for you to hit me with a review. You could also go to info at tdwellness.com and let me know what you think. I'd love to hear from you. All right, folks, I just want to say, remember, chop that diet mentality, fuel your body, and nourish your soul. Until next time, talk to you soon. Oh, yeah.